John chapter 5, reading from verse 13 through the end of the letter. We read, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Here ends the readings of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Let's pray together, church. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we gather in this place to worship you in spirit and truth. Father, we thank you that we do not gather to share our opinions, but we gather to seek truth from your word. Father, we pray that you would teach us through the power of your spirit this morning what you would desire for us to learn. Father, help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, church. If you'd allow me, I want to start off by putting you in an uncomfortable position this morning. One of those awkward places where maybe you're at the grocery store or maybe even walking outside and you make contact with somebody, eye contact with somebody you don't know that well. Some of us freak out in that scenario. Some of you do very well in that scenario. But what do you say? I made eye contact. Some of you would just say, hey. And they would say, hey. Some of you would say, hello. And they would say, hello. Some of you would even say, how's it going? Which is a question, by the way. And how do they respond? How's it going? <laughs> or I heard the other answer. They say, good. So let me ask you this morning, how's it going? <laughs> Everyone's like, it's a loaded question. I'm afraid to answer. <laughs> we are culturally conditioned to answer good. Have you noticed that? You notice when you ask somebody, like, how's it going? Like, that's fast. We're not even thinking about it. It's good. Not even thinking about it. Or even asking the question, how's it going, and not even expecting an answer. It's more like a, a greeting. And that's why we would say, for some of you younger folks, what's up? The person says, what's up? We're not really looking to hear what's up. It's just a greeting because it feels awkward and we have to say something. But the same way we get conditioned that way of how to answer and how to respond can also creep in to the house of God amongst believers. 
And so someone might share something intimate about their life, about some that they're struggling through or, or a difficult season. And you might say, I'm praying for you. Now, I shouldn't have to ask the question, but I'm going to. What does it mean when you tell somebody you're praying for them? Or maybe in a text message, they say something, you just say, praying. What does that mean? It's not a trick question. It means you're actually spending time in prayer, praying for them. But do you think it happens where people actually say, hey, praying for you, and they didn't give one second of prayer to what was going on? That it was almost like that condition of, how's it going? Good. And it's just a response. But now it's the Christian response. It's the acceptable Christian reply. Hey, praying for you. Prayer should be a labor of love for the Christian. And that's what we're looking at this morning as John comes to the close of his letter is that Christians pray for one another out of a labor of love. And so when we say that we are praying, guess what? We are praying. This morning, the title of the message is Labor of Love. We read, the, again, the entire epilogue this morning, but we're only covering two verses this morning. 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. So if you'd return to your Bibles this morning, let's read just those couple of verses as we get into this text once again. 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, we read, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. All right, so uh, yeah, what do we do with that? I guess we start with the elephant in the room. Like, what is John talking about, the sin leading to death. And as a matter of fact, if you go and you research this, many scholars spend most of their time, as they go through verses 16 and 17, trying to discern what John is talking about, that this sin that leads to death. Even though John in writing spends three times as much pen on writing about sin that does not lead to death. But because it's confusing. But he writes three times about sin not leading to death. Look at verse 16. He says, sin not leading to death. Again in verse 16, sins that do not lead to death. And verse 17, sin that does not lead to death. Three times he talks about that type of sin. But most of the effort spent on what is the sin that leads to death? And so we're going to take a stab at it this morning. But we're going to remain faithful to John's intent which means John focused three times as much time looking at the sin that does not lead to death. And so hopefully we'll spend more time looking at the sin that doesn't lead to death. But since it is the most misunderstood portion, I even know last week when we read this together, I had some people come up and go, huh? What's that about? And because it is the most misunderstood part of this, we will address that part first. So we'll look at sin leading to death. We'll address that first. And then we will go to sin not leading to death. And then the last part of what John writes about in verse 17 is that all wrongdoing is sin. 
And so as we look at these three areas that John addresses, we cannot forget the context of where these are in this letter. John has just finished writing about believers having confidence in prayer, that God hears their prayers when they pray according to his will. Look in your Bibles, just back a couple verses. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Remember, he writes, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So now John is continuing to write. He's continuing that theme of prayer. But now he brings up the topic of praying for others who are in sin. And he mentions this notable difference between sin that leads to death and sin that does not lead to death. But before we get into trying to discern the difference between those two, what does it mean that it leads to death? Just that word death. Is John speaking of a physical death or is he speaking of a spiritual death? And so we have to go back into the context of this letter to get that answer. In the most immediate context here, we know that John continued to contrast eternal life with death. Life and death. It is spiritual life and spiritual death. He's focused this entire argument throughout this letter about those who have assurance that they have eternal life. That is a spiritual state. That have eternal life. Rather than having eternal life, the opposite would be eternal damnation. And so he's speaking spiritually. Not a physical death, but a spiritual death. And as we look through the letter of 1 John, we realize he's used this word death six times in this letter. Four times, just in these two verses we're looking at this morning. But two other times, if you flip back to chapter 3, in chapter 3, verse 14, you'll see he used it there as well. 1 John three fourteen, he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. John is clearly speaking here of spiritual death, not physical death. Again, rather than eternal life, spiritual death would be eternal damnation. And so keep that in mind as we go through this this morning. This is what he's speaking of when he says death or sin that leads to death or sin that does not lead to death. And though he only speaks of this sin that leads to death one time. And he even says that we're not to pray for that sin. Of those who commit this sin. It is the one that rise, makes the question rise, what is this speaking of? So we will address this first this morning. Sin that leads to death. So what is it? We see John writes it at the end of verse 16 of chapter 5. He says, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. You say, well, what is it? Well, the first thing that we can infer from this letter is that the original hearers or the original recipients of this letter would have had no question about what John was writing about because he states it as a matter of fact. He doesn't go on to explain it or describe it. He just states it, which means they would have understood it. 
we are now a couple thousand years removed from that original context. And for us, we say, what actually is being said? As a matter of fact, many have come up with different viewpoints. Perhaps he meant this. Perhaps he meant that. Perhaps he meant this. Perhaps he meant that. So I've gathered some of those for you this morning. And I will share those with you. I put them into the four most discussed views. So what is the sin that leads to death? The first viewpoint is that John is referring to a specific deadly sin. Sin that if committed is unforgivable. Well, though all sins are punishable, this view holds that John is referring to sins that are so grievous that those who commit such sins have no chance of receiving eternal life. And those who see the merit of this viewpoint, they refer to the Old Testament and how there was a distinction between unintentional sins and deliberate sins. We see examples of that in Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 17. And though it's true that the Old Testament made a distinction between unintentional and deliberate sins, the context of John's letter is absent from any correlation to that viewpoint. And though it postdates John's letter, it's noteworthy that the Roman Catholic Church would later adopt a similar view regarding sin. They made a distinction between mortal sins and venial sins, or deadly sins and non-deadly sins. They at times said that sin like murder, idolatry, injustice, apostasy, adultery, and fornication were sometimes considered mortal sins. They would say that these sins were thought of to have pushed someone beyond the reach of God's grace. And so I want to just touch on that real quickly before we go any further. That we need to be clear because Jesus is very clear. That with the exception of blaspheming the Holy Spirit that we'll talk about here real shortly, there is no depth of sin where the grace of God cannot reach. Amen. Good with that? It's an amazing truth. Jesus was very clear. Jesus came to save sinners and his blood cleanses sinners from all sin. And so again, the first viewpoint was that there's this distinction between those that are deadly and those that are not deadly sins based upon how heinous they are. Nowhere does John's letter support this interpretation. So let's look to the second view. The second viewpoint is regarding sin that leads to death is that John is speaking of blasphemy against the Spirit. We know that Jesus warned his disciples about this. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus heals a demon-oppressed man who was mute and blind. And I don't know if you remember how the Pharisees responded. They attributed Jesus' works of healings to Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And in Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32... We see how Jesus responds. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. 
And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So what was Jesus speaking of. He was speaking of attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan, that that is blasphemy against the Spirit. And Jesus said that type of sin will not be forgiven. Is that what John is talking about? Is he talking about blasphemy against the Spirit? Once again, it's very difficult to attach that meaning to the context of John's letter. Nowhere does he bring it up anywhere in his letter, nor does he even hint about it in his writing. So we move on to the third viewpoint. What is this sin that leads to death? Some think that it is John referring to what we would call apostasy. An apostate is a person who once claimed to be Christian, but has irreversibly abandoned and renounced Orthodox Christianity. But this makes us ask the question, is it even possible for anyone who is genuinely a child of God to apostatize? If you've been with us through this study, we know that John has argued just the opposite. That God who has begun a good work is faithful to complete that good work. John has spent much time in this letter arguing just the opposite of this point. If you flip over just to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. John writes, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Those who have the Spirit of God have been transformed. They have been regenerated. They have a new heart in the Spirit of God. And John writes this right in the middle of the letter, but then he writes it again, expounds on it towards the very end of the letter. Turn to chapter 5 again. And look at verse 18. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Oh, I can't wait till we get into this, Lord willing, next week. God protects his children. John has argued this cover to cover throughout this letter. This doctrine of eternal security, or what some might refer to as the perseverance of the saints. And so that is what John is arguing. And since that is the case, there is no such thing as apostasy for a genuine believer. But some of you might ask, but what about those who once professed to know Christ? What about those who, who proclaim to know the truths of the gospel, but are now completely denying the claims of the gospel? You know, John has already wrote, written about this as well. Back in chapter 2, and you can flip over there since it's a short letter. It's easy, a page or two to the left. Chapter 2, verse 19 
John, referring to the false teachers, said, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So what does it mean, those who, quote-unquote, will apostatize? It means they demonstrate that they never were a genuine Christian. The truth is revealed. There was nothing to their proclaiming of the truth of Christ or of being regenerated. But they were never a child of God. John, in this letter, is dealing with false teachers who are creeping into the church with false doctrines. And it's in reference to those false teachers that he speaks about those who went out from us because they were not of us. And since a genuine believer could never apostatize. As a matter of fact, John writes for the very opposite purpose, that you have assurance of salvation, that if you are in Christ, you'll make it all the way to the end. (laughs) That if you're his, he will hold you fast. And so we must dismiss this viewpoint as it doesn't fit the understanding of what John is writing. And so the fourth and final viewpoint about the sin that leads to death is that John is referring to the false teachers and to what they taught. In John's view, they were not apostates. They were counterfeits. They were antichrists. They denied that the Son came in the flesh. John made that clear in chapter 2, that because they denied that Jesus came in the flesh, that they don't know the Father. In chapter 3, it was because of their disobedience that John would describe these false teachers as children of the devil. And he makes it clear in chapter 5 that since false teachers don't have the Son, that they don't have life. If you're in chapter 5, you can look at verse 12. 1 John 5, 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so indeed, their sin leads to death. They rejected Jesus as the Christ. They continued in habitual sin and did not obey Christ. And they did not demonstrate genuine love for other believers. Remember those being the three tests that John gives us over and over throughout this letter. The false teachers do not share fellowship with the Father and the Son. And they are excluded from eternal life. They have directed their false doctrines against the believers in the church. They've stirred up confusion and dissension amongst the believers. And so John says, I don't ask that you pray for that. If we are to pray for such people, the only prayer is that we pray that they would repent and fully trust in Christ. So let me remind you once again, John only referred to this sin that leads to death once. And of that sin, he says, I I don't say that you should pray for that. But on the flip side, his focus of these two verses that we're looking at this morning is about sin that does not lead to death. And so let's look at this secondly this morning, sin that does not lead to death. Let's look again at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 5. 
Again, John, the apostle John writes, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Three times he states it in a very short time, that there is sin that does not lead to death. But notice, he's speaking about seeing a brother. He's referring to a fellow believer. It could be a, a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. And it's interesting in the context of how he speaks of this fellow believer in Christ. He's speaking of seeing them committing sin. A sin specifically that he describes as not leading to death. And so we've already discussed the sin that leads to death. The sin of the false teachers and the ones who would deny Christ had come in the flesh that taught that obedience and, and brotherly love did not matter. They were surely not children of God. However, children of God, as John addresses, a brother, that's a child of God. They're a genuine believer. But as a genuine believer, as you are here this morning, and you can testify if you are a child of God, that you still sin. I was waiting to see if everybody jumps up and says, oh, not me. We all still sin. Though that is not the trajectory of our life anymore, we've been delivered from the bondage of sin, we still sin. And so we've been freed from the bondage, but this flesh and the enemy of our soul, there is temptation from within and from without. John describes this as sin that does not lead to death. I love the way one commentator put it. He put it this way, quote, The sin that does not lead to death is the sin believers commit and for which forgiveness has been secured by the atoning sacrifice of Christ, end quote. Maybe it's remind me, I say it often. I've been told I say it often, but I absolutely love it. Jesus on the cross says these words, it is finished. It is done. It is complete. All sin has been paid for. The wrath of God has been satisfied. John says, as you look and you see a brother who is committing sin, ask of him. He says, he will ask. Look at, again, verse uh, 16. He will ask. He will ask what? Well, we can't divorce this from what John has already said earlier in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 9, John wrote, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Everything. And since it's God's desire for his children to persevere, he calls upon other believers to intercede in prayer when they see one another sinning to ask. And he says, he shall ask. It's interesting this word that he uses here. He doesn't use the imperative word pray like a command. Like you are commanded to pray for them. Instead, 
he uses a future indicative, which means he is saying that the genuine believer will pray for the fellow believer when they see him in sin. It's not a command. It's the fruit of being a believer. That when we see a fellow believer in sin, we will go to God and we will pray for them. John Stott puts it this way. He writes, quote, It expresses not the writer's command, but the Christian's inevitable and spontaneous reaction. The way to deal with sin in the congregation is to pray, end quote. That's why we call this the, a labor of love. Have you ever seen another believer commit sin? Now, if you say no, I'm going to challenge you. You haven't spent much time with other believers. And so there's going to be an indictment there. It might come through gossip. Saying things that they ought not say. It could come through maybe elevating themselves by speaking in a prideful way of their accomplishments. And look at me. Have you ever been on social media before? Lots of false humility of I'm so blessed and honored to, you know, whatever it is, some huge accolade. Um, we've seen it. We see it in each other. That though we have the Spirit of God within us, we still have a flesh, this fallen flesh that often tries to lure us to one side or another to give in to temptation. John says, let him ask. What the implication here is that the gift of the local church is vital in the life of every believer. You know, there, there's a big movement today saying that the church is not necessary. That it's not important for people to gather anymore because technology has advanced. And now we have what is called, quote unquote, the online church. Now, if you've been on any type of social media and you're scrolling across, you know when you see a comment you don't agree with or whatever, you can just swipe and just keep going. You know you can't do that face-to-face -face with people? We are called to live out our faith. That our faith is a corporate nature. We're called to live it out together. That we are commanded with all these one another's and how to come together, how to stir up love and good works together. You cannot do that online. For those who are streaming in, I won't call them out again. I'm thankful that all of you are here. Because when John says that we will pray for those who we see committing sin, he is saying that there is value in the local church of gathering together, that we must be active members of a local church. Do you know there are those that never commit to a local church? They just go church hopping. And they're like, well, I like this preacher, but I like the music over there. But I like the programs for my kids over there. And I like, it's called consumerism. And they just go and shop around. That is not good for their spiritual health. And it's not good for the spiritual health of the body. That we are one body in Christ. And we're to commit our lives to living out the faith that we have in Christ together as a body as a community of believers. And if we're committed to do that, it means we must be present. We must gather together. It's impossible to show love and care unless you gather together. If you're not present, 
You can't fulfill the commands of Scripture. And so that obviously is as we gather on the Lord's day together, but it's beyond that as well. It's during the week. It's after church on Sunday. What's going on? It's how do we get involved in one another's lives? How do we build rich relationships with one another? It means we need to get beyond how's it going? What's up? It means we need to spend time together. Perhaps it's attending a home fellowship group on Wednesdays or men's discipleship on Thursdays or women's Bible study on Tuesday evening or Wednesday morning and getting to know those people in those groups. But I would say even go beyond that. How about gathering for a meal together? Most of us like to eat. If you don't like to eat, maybe grab a coffee together. But being intentional to come together. And so before I move on from that point, because this is what John is pointing to, he's saying, if you see a brother committing sin, which infers you're spending time with them. And so here's the challenge. This week, schedule a time to meet with somebody else in the church. It doesn't have to be this week. I understand schedules are difficult. You don't have to meet this week. But this week, here's the challenge, is to schedule it. I mean, look around. Are there people here you don't know very well in here? How many times have you said, oh, we should really get together. I should really meet up with that person. And then you don't schedule it and it never happens. We do that often, right? Oh, we need to do that. We need to catch up. We need to grab dinner. We need to... But if it doesn't go on our calendar for most of us, it doesn't happen. So this week, be intentional. Reach out to somebody else. Know that what John is saying is that we need to be deeply involved with other people and in their lives. That this demonstrates genuine love for others. That when they sin, we would be able to see it and we would be able to intercede in prayer. Beyond just interceding in prayer, we know the scriptures tell us that we're to exhort and we're to admonish one another. Hebrews chapter, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, we read this. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Again, you gotta be with people to do this. You gotta build relationships. You gotta know them dearly. And, and so though we are clearly commanded to exhort and to admonish one another, meaning to, to gently and gracefully speak the truth in love to one another. To, to carefully show one another their blind spots. You know, the sin that they might not even be aware that they're engaging in rather than condoning their sin or to encourage them to repent. And so while we see the commands that we are to exhort, that we are to admonish others, John refers in his letter to the primary task and the primary task is to speak to God first on their behalf. To go to the Lord first. That when you see them commit a sin, that you would go and you would intercede in prayer first. There was a, a quote I came across a couple weeks ago that has been with me ever since. It's my screensaver on my computer. 
and it is convicting and challenging to me, and so I'm going to share it with you. So here you go. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, he makes this profound statement. He said, spiritual love will speak to Christ about a brother more than to a brother about Christ. I'll let you process that a little bit and I'll say it again. Spiritual love will speak to Christ about a brother more than to a brother about Christ. What is he saying? What is he summarizing? He's, yeah, he's saying most of our time should be going to God on their behalf rather than just going to them. That we're laboring in love for them by going to the Lord and praying for them rather than just running to them and opening our mouth and seeing what we see and pointing out what we see, it's to labor in love, to go to the Lord and to plead before him for them. For John, praying for fellow believers flows out of a love for them. That should be the natural case for all of us, that we love one another. But James Montgomery Boyce has an indictment against the believers he said this, quote, he said, In all honesty, it must be acknowledged that in, in this area, Christians often fail grievously. For sin in a brother becomes all too often a cause for gossip rather than a cause for prayer, end quote. Ouch. That our love for one another would cause us to go and pray for them. If we love them, we're going to pray for them. It's a labor of love. It's not an opportunity for personal sin. I mean, actually do this. Look, look around. Just take a moment. We got a little time out. Look around. Look at, look at the people here. Take a look. Don't say, what's up? <laughs> just, just look around. Look at their different faces. Here's the question. How much love do you have for the people you just turned around and looked at? And I'm looking at all of you. How much love do you have for one another? Do we love one another the way that Christ has loved us? Are we committed to one another? If you're visiting this morning, <laughs> or maybe you're, uh, you've visited only a couple times, I'm going to give you a pass for now. But if you're a member of this church, you are committed to live out your faith together with the other members of this church. That this is a gift of God that we can come together and share faith in Christ to encourage one another and to stir one another to love and good works. It's within this body of believers that we get to carry out the one another's. And so if you're showing up on Sundays and you just make a beeline for the car straight afterwards, you're missing out on what church is. You have a, a completely misunderstanding of what a biblical definition of church. Church is not the building that we come into to worship God. Church is the people we gather with to worship God. You are the church. 
God has given us is a blessing one to another. And as we are given one to another, we are to labor in love. It will flow out of us as we love those who are around us. That we are one body, individually members of that same body, which means we care for one another. We comfort one another. We encourage one another. Beloved, it starts with just one member. Be intentional. Reach out to somebody maybe you haven't broken bread with, somebody you haven't sat down and got to know. Start with one. Invite them out to dinner or over your house or to join your family and begin developing meaningful relationships within the body of Christ. It will then be the natural overflow of your love one for another that will cause you to pray for one another, to be fervent in prayer one for another. And so rather than just taking off after service, hang around. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Get to know one another. That's why we often have refreshments after service to give you an opportunity to stay here a little bit longer before you take off. And maybe even use that time to schedule a time to meet later with those same individuals that you were talking with. It's time to demonstrate Christ's love one to another, to pray for them, to pray for one another, that we would walk worthy of the cross of Christ, that they would put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And as we pray for one another, that we would not minimize or justify or excuse the sin in one another. But we would pray. We would seek the Lord on one another's behalf. Church, before I move on to the third point, I want you to think about it as I ask you to look around and see people. Did you see somebody you're like, man, I don't really know them very much. Would you take the challenge in reaching out to them? Spending some time with them, praying with them, encouraging them. By the way, they know where it's coming from. They're sitting here. <laughs> Lastly, this morning, John wants to make sure that we understand that all wrongdoing is sin. I want to make sure that we're not minimizing or justifying or excusing any sin. So in verse 17, he says, all wrongdoing is sin. And so he's written that there's sin that leads to death. There's sin that does not lead to death. But he wants to set the record straight so there isn't any confusion about sin. All wrongdoing is sin. No sin is acceptable. All sin is rebellion against God. And he's spoken about this throughout this letter. If you're a note taker, I'm not going to read through all these, but you can write them down. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, he begins speaking about sin. We quoted verse 9 earlier about confessing sin. That we would be cleansed from all unrighteousness. That we would be forgiven. In chapter 2, he begins in verses 1 and 2, saying that the purpose that he wrote this letter, one of the purposes, is that we might not sin. But he says this, but know this, if you do sin, which believers do. He says you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, that Jesus stands and intercedes on our behalf. Again, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, he talks about your sins being forgiven because you are children of God. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, he says, all those who are children of God do not continue to practice sin. That means to stay and remain in habitual sin. Will we at times sin? Yes. 
we will miss the mark. However, the believer, because the Holy Spirit is within them, will not remain in sin. But he is faithful to draw us out. Again, in 1 John 3, 8 and 9, he speaks of those who continue to sin, that their father is not God, but the father is the devil. And then in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, he speaks of Christ being the propitiation for our sins, that he has satisfied the wrath of God fully and completely on our behalf. All of us who have trusted in Christ, all of us who have repented and turned to Christ, enjoy forgiveness of sins. But if you have never repented and placed your trust in Jesus, you too can enjoy the forgiveness of sins. Jesus came to save sinners just like you. He gave his son to pay the penalty for your sin upon the cross. And on the third day, he rose from the grave and he promises to raise up all those who place their trust in him, that they will have eternal life. Jesus is both Lord and he is Savior, and he welcomes you to come to him. And for all who do come to Christ, God's desire is that we no longer sin. And thus, we pray for one another. We labor in love for one another. That as we see someone fall into sin, that we pray and we seek the Lord for one another. We focus our prayers on spiritual matters rather than physical matters. We keep eternity in mind as we are praying. Spending less time praying for those things that are fleeting and more time praying for those things that are eternal. Praying for the saints is our labor of love. Perhaps this morning you've noticed that your labor is weak. But you have not been laboring much for fellow believers. Do not feel condemned, but know you have great opportunity. Look around you. You have a family. A family in Christ that all need your prayers. And so rather than whipping yourself and condemning yourself, be encouraged to pray for the saints around you. Maybe you look over and you see, uh, I see somebody and I go, hey, let's go meet up for coffee or, or for dinner or ladies, maybe you see a lady across the room and you go meet them after service. Be intentional, set up time to meet and encourage each other in the Lord. And so before I close this morning, we have heard a lot from God's word this morning about praying and a labor of love, being intentional with one another, but I want to give you a quiet minute to reflect on how the Spirit of God might minister to you individually in this matter. So let's take a quiet moment together before we close in prayer. Father, thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, your son. 
Thank you for your amazing love towards us. Thank you for your word and for teaching us truth. Father, we ask that you would help us to love one another well. Help us to be intentional in one another's lives. Help us, oh God, to intercede for one another in prayer. Help us corporately as a church to be a healthy church, one that loves and cares for each other deeply, that you would be honored and glorified and that we would be edified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.